Hello, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Foreign Football Podcast. Today, it is with great excitement and anticipation that we have Alex Bumberry from former Canadian national soccer team player. Yes, we're saying soccer in this case. <laughs> in the U.S. and Canada, for those that don't know, that's how we say it. Mm-hmm. But Alex, welcome to the show. Thank you for joining us and looking forward to, to speaking with you today. Well, first of all, thank you for having me. It's always a pleasure sitting down and shooting the breeze with the, my beloved soccer fans and, and obviously the people that love the beautiful game. It wasn't so beautiful for us today, but uh, <laughs> I'm hoping I've got my second team. I've got Canada, so I'm hoping that tomorrow I'll see something. And it's going to be a tough match against Morocco, but I, I think they're going to pull one out. This well, is a good squad. Yeah. Yeah, it's it, it's never easy to win in any world in any international games. I don't care what anyone says, with the exception when you're playing against countries that you know are now trying to get at, at that level. But the the parity that we have now in international football, Morocco is going to be tough for sure. Belgium, oh my goodness, <laughs> wow! Talk about an incredible team, um, and then Canada. So I think that Canada has the, the the coaching, which is very important. They have the 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 players, they have the athleticism, they have the system, and they have the confidence. So I think with you put that all together, what that forms is a very very strong strong team. Does it surprise you though that from 1986 until now that they didn't qualify because you came in. And you made your debut with the senior team, was it two or three months after the 1986 World Cup? Was there that level of confidence there then? Or is it just so much more now compared to then? Well, I think a lot of people think that I came in after the World Cup, but I was actually an alternate for that team that qualified for the 86 World Cup. And I was only 17 years of age. I just came back from the World Youth Championship in Minsk, Russia. And then I was called up by Tony Waiters to be with the senior team that's going to Mexico for the World Cup. And he called me in two days before they were going to travel to Colorado and stay there for two, three days to get climatized with the altitude and all of that. Um, he called me into his room and he said, and I thought he was calling me to <laughs> his room to say, hey, congratulations, you're going to be coming on the squad and everything. Everyone thought I was going to be on the squad. And he just said to me, he said, listen, Alex, we, we love what we see. You're only 17 years of age. We're going to go with the veteran players. And you have a lot of World Cups ahead of you. And we're going to keep you as an alternate. And I was obviously devastated. And we unfortunately, we never made it to the World Cup. But here's the thing. If we had the same format as they currently have in terms of qualifying, we would have made the World Cup in 94 and most likely in 98. And our team in 94 was extremely talented, well-coached by Bobby Leonarduzzi and Alan Arrington. We had two really good coaches, and we had some unbelievable players like Dale Mitchell, Carl, Carl Valentine, Mike Sweeney. Uh, the list goes on. Paul Pesci-Solito, Craig Forrest, I, I mean, Randy Samuel, Lyndon Hooper. And so we had the talented players. What we did not have, a lot of those players that I just named, they were playing in the MISL, the major indoor soccer league. 
I remember hearing about this league. I had. Yeah. And it was, I, I played in it for a year here in the state of Minnesota. That's where my Minnesota connection came from. Right. Um, and so they weren't playing on this big field outdoor. They were playing indoor, but they were extremely talented because there wasn't a professional league. And, and at that time I was one or two players, maybe four or five players from North America, from America or Canada that was playing at the highest level in Europe. I was playing for West Ham United, right? I just signed for West Ham United. And, and so we didn't have players playing at a high level outdoor, but we had a lot of talented players. And if they were playing in the European leagues as our current players are playing, I really think that would have made a huge difference in confidence and not being intimidated because of the magnitude of the environment and what it meant to play, to try to play and win to get into the, and qualify to get into the World Cup. So I think that was the difference. I think talent-wise, we had as many talented players back in, those, in the day when I played. Uh, experience and playing at the highest level, we just, we were lacking in that. And that, that, that cost us to some degree, but even with, with that being kind of a handicap for us, we still performed extremely well. And we were a goal away from going to the World Cup in 94. I remember scoring the goal against Mexico at Varsity Stadium. We were up one nothing, and Mexico. And then we scored again. Lyndon Hooper scored again to make it 2-1. And the referee called it offside. And it was not offside. And they came back and won the game 2-1. to one, And that's how we lost out. Then we had to go to, us. I mean, all kinds of stuff to qualify. But we never pulled it off. So. That 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 is that is it in a nutshell for me. I know it sounds like a little bit of grievance. It's not grievance. It's just me speaking the fact that we 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 had a strong team, but this team, whew, they're special. And I don't I don't think of it as being as grievance. I think it's more just kind of almost like reminisce, not like forlorn, but thinking about this could have been what what should have been. But yeah. one thing that I'm kind of curious about too is like you mentioned the talent but then you mentioned the lack of being able to play at this elite level you know you were playing in prior to uh, you were playing in the Canadian Premier League and then went to West Ham mm -hmm. was that a, a similar trajectory where you saw like a lot of talented players playing within the Canadian Premier League but then obviously your path diverged and that you went over to West Ham how did that even happen in the first place i've seen something saying that you had like uh you were performing well in youth championships or there was i think i had read something saying that you had scored against three goals or something against bermuda and that caught yep. their attention how, how did this actually happen well it's 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 such a long crazy story right we we always have to remember that we had a canadian soccer league after the 86 world cup we in 87 or 88, we had a Canadian soccer league, a professional league. And that was a foundation for us. And that was kind of like the way that I kind of learned how to become a professional. Right. And I was still very young, straight from high school, I became a professional. So I was so young, I had to be in that environment. And I learned a lot from the Hamilton Steelers and Mario Di Bartolomeo was the owner who was kind of all in when it came to soccer, kind of a crazy Italian guy or oh, loved <laughs> soccer to the hilt. 
And this man would do anything for his players and for the, 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 the city of Hamilton. And I learned a lot from that. I learned some good and I learned some bad. And I was able to have that platform to play in. And then we had World Cup qualifying. And, and that, obviously, people are watching you play. And that really helped me to get that spot in at uh, West Ham United. So that was a catalyst for me to move on to the higher level. But it wasn't an easy one because I had to go from I went to France first, then I went to Scotland, then I went to England. I went to maybe five different teams on tryouts until I finally signed a contract with West Ham United, five year contract. And at that time, um, there were hardly any American or Canadian playing at the highest level. There weren't too many. Uh, you probably, if you go look back, especially getting on a club like West Ham United, um, there weren't too many, maybe two or three players. That was it. So that was a big deal for a Canadian player to get the opportunity to play for West Ham United. So that told everyone that we have talent in Canada. And, and I'm, 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 I was truly blessed to have the opportunity to go out there and be the first one to really get into that environment, even though there were some players prior to me, like Bobby Leonarduzzi and some other players that played in England. Um, I had the opportunity to go to a big club in England at a time where they weren't looking at Canadians or American players that much. Did you, at the time when this happened, were you feeling, considering this more of like, more pressure or was it more pride? Was it somewhere in between knowing that, okay, I'm basically, essentially I'm one of the first Canadian players to be playing at this high, at a high level. Did you feel at the time ready to take that next leap? It, it seems like you probably did because you're going to five different countries. You're going to France, doing all these tryouts. It seems like you had that self-belief already even at a young age oh i had it i believe me i had it i'm the youngest of 13 man i had eight brothers and four sisters and my 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 four or five of my elder my older brothers played soccer so um and and i had that confidence that i can do this right and and then after the world cup randy samuel made it to psv heinhoven right so and Randy is a dear friend of mine. We played on the Canadian national team together and we're like brothers and we were roommates when, when <laughs> with the Canadian national team. So he was an inspiration in many ways. That's why I said there was only like two or three players. So he went to PSV and then I followed and I went to West Ham United. So there were two Canadian players in Europe at the time and there were others playing don't get me wrong but they weren't playing on like two big clubs like PSV and and West Ham United and they were probably playing in a second division at the time uh, it wasn't the premier league it was a first division that's what it was called and then they changed it the year after so i had that confidence i i believed in myself and even though there were others that thought ah alex you should stay in canada and where you think you're going they were the naysayers they were the naysayers <laughs> But I, I didn't I didn't fall for that. I went with my gut feeling and I, I had great support from my parents, from from everyone um, that that cared about me, te former teammates, coaches, you name it. And I went with that, man. I went with all of that on my shoulders and I knew they were there supporting me spiritually. And I went and took advantage of the opportunity that presented itself. 
you have to. I mean, you know, when something like this happens and you go, okay, I don't know if, when, or even if this opportunity will come again, you have to be able to go and say, okay, I'm, I'm going to take this. And you're right. Okay. It's a little bit difficult maybe coming in, but since Randy was playing with PSV, maybe that could, that probably eases it to say, okay, cool. Not only do I have one of my best friends, my teammates, my roommate with the national team, yeah, yeah. but he's playing for a big club like PSV. And even now we look at Dutch football. Ajax was in the semifinals in the Champions League only a few years ago. Yeah. We see more and more. We've seen Pepe going and playing. Um, now he's playing in Netherlands. But even before that, I've seen a um, few Americans coming over and actually doing pretty well. I think one thing that makes me kind of curious, I've got um, actually a couple friends of mine, and one of them plays with Minnesota United, and he made the step up from playing with North Carolina FC, which is used to be second division. Now it's third mm -hmm. division. And he and I were talking about how you make that step up. And he said, you reach a point where you have that confidence and you know, this is basically now or never. If I don't take this chance, will another one present itself? Maybe, maybe not. And then you went and did that. And then, I mean, I'll talk about, it, I guess, in a little bit, but you ended up being able to become the leading goal scorer for CS Maritimo out and out in Funchal, out in Portugal. Mm -hmm. Was that, did that seem inevitable when you came to Portugal? Cause you got to West Ham. Did you, was it work like visa issues or something? And that prevented you from playing? Cause no. I know back in the day it was, it was, oh, like it was really hard to get your work visa back then. Really hard. Yeah. But I qualified because uh, you had to be um, an international player and you had to be playing a starter on the, on your, or on your national team. And you had to be starting at least 75% of the games. That That's was one, what that, happened. Those, there are, you go. Those, those are the couple <laughs> of the criteria for you to make it there. And I qualified for that, thankfully. And, 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 you know, when you talk about taking up your opportunity at that time, I was married as well. I got married at a very young age. And I had my daughter, Kylie, who's an actress now, and my son, Teal, who plays for Nashville. So I was 22, and, two, and I had two children and a wife. So I had a motivation like, like you could not believe. And I also had a mom who was working at the time prior to that, you know, working hard. And I always wanted to provide for my mom. So I had a hunger. Like, I couldn't fail doing this. So what happened at West Ham United while I signed up with West Ham United, we were still going through World Cup qualifying. So Les Wilson, I'll tell you this story. Les Wilson, who's the team manager of the senior national team, sends a letter to Billy Bonds. And Harry Redknapp was the second coach. Sends him a letter with the schedule of all of the games that I'm going to be playing, which means that I'm going to be missing maybe 12 to 14 games. I just signed a five-year contract with them. I'm going to be their striker <laughs> of the future because they had Clive Allen in there and Trevor Morley and uh, Mike Small. And, and I came in and Billy Bonds basically said to me, the, job, the spot is yours, right? From what they saw of me and everything. I, 
one of the, the, the assistants came knocking in the locker room and said, Bunbury, the gaffer wants to see you. The gaffer means the boss, right, in, in England. And I was like, okay, all my teammates are looking at me going, whoa, when the gaffer wants to see you, that's not good. <laughs> like, like now he wants to see you. And then I'm, I'm looking at these guys and they're all like, I go into the office, man. And, uh, and, I, and Harry's standing up. I see it like it was yesterday. And this is how many years ago, 30, 30 something. Harry's standing up and he's got the look. And then <laughs> Billy Bonds is there with his hands crossed. I come in and he, he he plots this thing down on the table and he goes some explicit i mean i mean the cuss words were just coming out <laughs> and he's like what is this and i said i have no idea he goes we just got this notice that you're going to be leaving and you're going to be missing this many games you tell me right now club or country i'm right then out. and there yeah, right there and there. He said, club or country? Where are you going for, club or country? And I'm sitting there and I'm going, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm an immigrant. I migrated to Canada when I was nine with all of my siblings and my parents. And Canada gave us so much. Look at what I became because of the opportunity that was presented to me. I got the opportunity to train in state-of-the-art uh, stadiums, uh, facilities, I should say, and academically. All of these things that were provided to me. I was a carded athlete. And without hesitation, I said, country. I said, country. And, and, and Billy, Billy Bonds almost fell over. <laughs> and, and Harry Redknapp was like, what? And, and they were freaking out. And I said, I, there's no way I could say no to my country. And Billy Bonds, long story short, basically said, listen, when you come back, you're going to find it hard to be on the first team. And he was true to his words. When I came back, I was training with the, uh, with the reserve team, and I was playing with the reserve teams, uh, team, and I was scoring. And at times, he had me training with the youth team to punish me. That's how they were back in the day. And, and, and it, after a period of time, it was like several months, and I couldn't take it anymore. Yeah, I got dressed to be on the first team, but rarely played like 10 minutes here and five minutes there, a few games and cup games. And I told my agent, Jerome Anderson, I said, I need to get out of here. And he's like, Alex, nobody's going to take you because you haven't had a chance to play. You're going to have to suck this in, suck this up. I'm like, no, I don't. I need out of here. I need to play. Like within a week, within two days, sorry, from that conversation with Jerome, I get a call from a friend of mine who says, Alex, we, we hear your situation in, in, we see your situation in West Ham United. Edinho, who played in the Canadian Soccer League, a great Brazilian player, played in three World Cups, became the coach of Club Sport Maritimo. Okay. And he knew me as a player. And he, in the, the guy said to me, he said, Alex, do you want to come to Madeira, Portugal, and play in the Portuguese First Division? And guess what I said? said no <laughs> you said no it has to it, i need something I said, a little I better said, yeah I, I said no i said no i don't want to go to play in portugal i'm in england the top league in the world man i don't want one of the top leagues in the world i don't i'm gonna make it work here i said no he goes man you, alex you need to come and all that i i thought about it thought about it and i said to jerome you know what 
I'm not playing here. I might as well just go and see what it's like. And Jerome arranged it. And it's a small island. And landing, you come down like this because the, the runway is so short. And I didn't know it. And I don't like flying. And, and the plane just dropped. And I felt like... <gasps> Like we were going to die. And I go, oh, man. But you can see as you're coming into the island, you could see it. It's so gorgeous. It's beautiful. But the landing was scary. I got there and people greeted me. The president greeted me, Hui Fontish. And Edinho, of course, and Edinho came to me and we tried to talk. He spoke a little bit of French. <laughs> That's how we <laughs> communicated. And because um, I didn't know a word in Portuguese. And I fell in love with that place. And I stayed there and we arranged for me to transfer from West Ham to Maritimo and the rest is history. Just that, incredible. That is unbelievable. Yeah, just that's the story. That's the story. And every time I tell people that they're like, really? I, that is exactly why I left West Ham and then ended up in Maritimo. And the thing about Maritimo is that after I won Foreign Player of the Year in 94, I think I, I'm the first North American player to do that, according to someone who told me that. I uh, won Foreign Player of the Year in 94. And um, um, there were Benfica, who was a big club in, in Portugal, they were after me. Bari in Italy were after me. Leeds United wanted me back in the English Premier League. And guess what I did? I you said, stayed. no. I stayed. I stayed. I stayed with the club. And, and I stayed loyal to the club. And for them to keep me there, I, I had to sign with a, a, a soft drink company. And it was called Brisa Maracuja, Brisa. Brisa. And they came on board and made my contract comparable to what I would have made if I went to Benfica or any of these clubs. And I ended up staying there. And I still had two years left in my contract when I left because being on an island, being on an island which where it's football 24-7 and you're one of the main guys and you're the goal scorer, you have absolutely no privacy. You can't go anywhere without people gawking at you. I mean, I had to disguise myself sometimes to go out. I'm not kidding you. So what happened is one of my um one of the directors of the club was the owner of the this private golf club. And when I became the all-time leading scorer of the club, as a gift, he made me the, a lifetime member of the club. So I'm still a <laughs> lifetime member of that club. And, and so he said, he said to me, Alex, this would be a great way for you to get away and learn how to play golf. So he had someone come and pick me up. And I used to go in the back of his, of his car so no one would see me and stay down. And he drove me to the golf course because I couldn't use my car. Everyone knows my car. And I went there and he taught me how to play golf. So I learned how to play golf at that golf club. I, I mean, but that was my escape in many ways. And, and that, that, that island and that club means the world to me. And the people of Madeira and the supporters of uh, Club Sport Maritimo, they're fantastic people. And, and what a life-changing experience that was for me and for my kids and, and my entire family. And fan base too. It's it's nice to see not even that you stayed, but like 
it doesn't surprise me because you mentioned Benfica. I actually went to a match there mm-hmm. last year. I, I didn't, I wanted to go to, to see it, but I prefer sporting. And I went over there and I had a friend of mine. She was pregnant at the time. And I told her I was going to see a Benfica match. And I had the hat. And she said, take that hat off. You know, if you get, she, she said, I got the other hat for you. She gave me a sporting hat. But we were, you know, from what you had said and from what I've seen too, it's like being that it's a small country, there's 10 million people there. And you look at it and you think, they breathe football and we've seen sporting fans attacking players at the stadium. When you looked at it, did you, did you feel like both a blessing and a curse? It's, it seems like being the fact that number one, that you're a striker, you're always, that's always going to be, I hate to say it. I I played, I've always played defense, but come on, the people that they pay attention to are the strikers. Yes, they do. Yes. Yes. You're you're, yeah, you're the guy. But, like the quarterback in NFL football, yeah, exactly. Or yeah. we're actually I was watching the CFL yesterday. I got to see the Grey Cup, so that was oh, yeah, <laughs> that was kind of nice. But when you look at it, did you feel that you guys were able to achieve what you wanted to as a club? Especially when you look at you look at Portugal and you go, okay, we've got Benfica, Porto, and Sporting. Yeah. Did you guys feel like you were able to accomplish as much as you wanted? Didn't because you went and were was it runner up in the Tasa de Portugal? Yeah, yeah, yeah we uh, were runner up. I, I I can tell you this: those years that I played with Club Sport Maritimo, we had some of the best players in the entire league. We had Vado, who played on the national team, Paulo Alves, who played on the national team of Portugal, uh, Paulo Madeira, who played on the national team of uh, Portugal. We had several Brazilian players who played at the top flight in Brazil. Um, we have Van der Straten, who's Belgian, who Canada and, 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 and Belgium are going head to head. I think they're arranging something for us to do before the game, both him and I. I, I just spoke to a Portuguese um, uh, journalist, so they're trying to get us together before the game to talk <laughs> about it. Um, we were very, very talented, and we were not afraid of any of those teams. We, be- we, we would beat Benfica or tie them at least at home or beat them. Um, Porto, we beat, we beat Porto in the semifinals in the Taça de Portugal. You know, I scored that goal and that's a historical game for us. Um, we were the underdog and oh my gosh. And we won that game tactically. We beat them one, nothing, just the way Polatori drew it up. We played like that. We countered on them. He said, we might have one or two opportunities. And he goes to me and he said to me in the locker room, he goes, Alex, you're going to get one or two opportunities and you're going to have to put at least one of them away for us. And if you do that, we will win this game. One, nothing. He said that to me before the game. (laughs) Honestly, he said it to me, called me at the other office. He said, Alex, this is the game where you're going to have to put in one goal for us. You're the one who's going to get one or two opportunities. And if you were to go back and look at that game, Porto, our goalkeeper was phenomenal in that game, Everton. He saved our butt, okay? They were just <laughs> coming at us and with waves. And the, the amount of saves that he made, what a great goalkeeper and what a great teammate he was. I had great teammates. And we got that one. We had a couple, but we got that one opportunity. Suedo went, well, I flicked it on. Paulo Alves, Paulo Alves controlled it. I remember it, got it out wide to Suedo. I knew that I had to make that run. 
And Suedo knows that when I make that run, I, I always attack the near post. And he put the ball at the near post and I, <laughs> and I got to it with my head. And we were playing at home. And, and I can tell you this, when the ball went in back in the net, it was almost like dead silence for like a moment. You understand? Like I, and then all of a sudden, we can have like 13, 14,000 people at our stadium. It's packed and people are on the roof and the, I mean, they're <laughs> everywhere. And, and, and all of a sudden, it was like the entire island, island, right? Because they were lit up. When I scored, everyone, radios, everything, everybody's listening because we're playing Porto. They can't get into the stadium, but they're all there. You can hear a sound like I've never heard a sound in my life. It wasn't only a sound from the stadium. This was coming from the entire island. Oh, and people are freaking out. And I turn. I was going that way. And most of the fans are on that side. And I turned around. And Humberto, one of the Brazilian players, he goes, oh, go. Like he's telling <laughs> me, go to the fans and go to um, Paul Alves. I mean, Paul Otori. So I turn and I do my stupid celebration. And the and I looked to the fans and it was like they weren't there. All there was like loud people just going crazy. It was probably the greatest feeling that I ever had playing in a game. And and nothing beats playing for your country, but that moment was the greatest moment in my entire career. And and the fact that we beat Porto and we were the underdog and we went to the Tasa Portugal final the first time in a hundred years for this club, the history that we made as a team and just to be this Guyanese Canadian that, that went there and was the one who scored that goal. And, and I, I didn't do that by myself. My teammates were there, but just the fact that I was able to put that, that historical goal, there's no greater feeling. And I think the people on the Island of Madeira, they will never forget that. And they will never forget the fact that I stayed loyal to the club. That's why my name still resonates on that island. If you go to the island and you say, you know, Alex, you get free meals all day. <laughs> <laughs> you get free meals all day. <laughs> I mean, it's you're right, though, because it's like there's something different when you've got an entire island and you can actually literally hear everything pulsating and you're right too when you when we look at things most of the time when you see a, a player and they've been say a one club man now with you okay you played with different clubs but like honestly it was it was cs maritimo seems to have been the the most oh yeah the the, the most special moments mm -hmm. and i was thinking about this even the other day what separates most clubs and even most players is how much unity and how much bond did they have? Were they truly a team? Yes or no. For you all, you guys were truly a team. And, yes. you know, we had, um, I was speaking with another player. Um, his, his name was Kennedy Mweeney and he played with Zambia and they won the African Cup of Nations as underdogs. And it was the same thing with him that it is with you, which is when you have an actual team, that's the differences. We may say this is a national team. Sometimes there's more division than others. For you, you guys were a team. And that's what I think we talked about this a little earlier, but I think that's what diff what made Canada, particular during this qualifying round, that's what differentiated them, in my opinion. When I saw them play, I remember I was speaking with some friends and they said, 
you know, they got David, they got Davies, like this is different. And I said, they have a level of confidence I've never seen. And personally, I think it's good for us. And I think it's good for, I'm not sure how you feel, but I think it's good for CONCACAF in general that we're seeing this, that we're seeing a strong Canada. Mexico's regressing a little bit, but that's because it's kind of a changing of generations. But I think the fact that you guys play truly as a team, that's what differentiates this, this current generation. But it seems like that's been instilled in Canadian soccer from, uh, at the minimum, from when you were there, but probably even earlier. Well, yeah. I mean, yeah. Because for us to succeed, we have to play as a team, right? I mean, when I played, um, we played as a team. Um, we, there were some things, some areas where we weren't as, as talented, you could say, as the Mexicans. The Mexicans, but every time we played Mexico on our home turf, it was a game. We either tied them or beat them. Every time we, just about every time we played them at our, when you go to Azteca, it's a different ball game. You know, the altitude, they, they play the games at, at four o'clock in the afternoon. So, you know, you're, you're, if you can last 10 minutes, you're lucky. But we played as a team. And, and that, in, in many ways, that, that really resonates when you have the coaching that implements that, that sees that. You know, you need to have a leader in, those, in, in, in that atmosphere. If you don't respect the coach and you don't buy into his philosophy, um, then you're not going to play as a unit. And, and we, had, we had that with Bobby Leonarduzzi and Alan Arrington, the assistant coach. And we had that with myself and Randy um, playing at the highest level. And, and we had players who played at the highest level. Craig Force was playing in England at that time too. Um, not at the highest level, but he was playing in England. Frank Yallop was playing. Uh, Colin Miller was playing in England. So we had some players that were playing in England um, Paul Pesciolito started to play in England. Um, you know, so we had that, we had that. So we were starting to build like this team now. Um, so we had to play together though, because we didn't have, we didn't have, a, a lineup that every player was practically playing at the highest level, like Mexico had, for instance, here with this team. Now, um, all of the players are playing professionally at a high level, either in the MLS or in Europe. And, and they're not intimidated by anyone. They don't feel inferior to anyone. They don't feel like they don't belong. They know they be belong. And when you know you belong someplace, you shine, man. And especially when your teammates feel the same way as you do, you shine. And when you buy into the, the philosophy and the system that the coach is implementing, building a system not around his philosophy, but building a system around the players that he has and, 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 and building that system with the strength that they have, the athleticism, the speed that they have. And, and, and that alone tells me that they can get out of the, the group stage. And once you get into the knockout stage, anything could happen. Anything could happen. So I, I wouldn't put it past to see them take a good run of this. I'm rooting for them. And, you know, I watched a game with the U.S. earlier today. And the first half, they did really well. They played really well. And then the second half, um, I don't know what happened. Um, uh, they, they, they're fortunate that they didn't lose that game in the second half. 
You're right. Fortunate. And that's what I noticed. But too. I'm rooting for them too. I want them to do well. I'm hoping both of us do yeah, well, but yeah. you're right in that for some reason, sometimes things just completely change from half to half, but you're right in the sense too, where if you're not buying into the system and you're just looking at it and say, say you were playing uh, as a striker, and then maybe he said, I want you to go in and play as a secondary striker, or even maybe playing out on the wing and you go, or even an attacking mid, we could even say, mm-hmm. and you go, well, this isn't my natural position. Maybe I, you know, I believe in the coach. I'll give it a chance. Maybe you excel, but that seems to be the kind of differentiating point of, do I have trust for this, for the manager? Do I believe in him? And if he's making these changes, do I really fully believe that these changes are for the best, for the better of our country and for our team? If yes, okay, easy to buy in. But if not, you're right. That's, and that's what can differentiate a great manager from maybe a mediocre one. And I, I remember last year, you know, you mentioned Leeds United, but that's when, when I saw Jesse Marsh come into Leeds United, I honestly think they bought into the system. And I think that's what helped them from avoiding relegation. And Definitely. even earlier this year, we were seeing when they beat Liverpool. And I, I thought to myself, that's kind of the characteristics of what makes a good manager. Because for you, you've stepped into coaching after retiring. And nope. was this something, it feels like you already had that knowledge of, this is what makes maybe a good manager and a good coach, which is getting the players to believe in themselves and get the best out of themselves. You can tell them and instruct them, but if they don't, if they don't see it within themselves, it's, it oh, won't yeah. happen. Honestly. Very difficult. And I think, I think the thing that I think really differentiates a high level coach, especially at the professional level is that a coach at the professional level is not necessarily going to make me a better player. This is what people don't understand. I have to make me a better player, right? I have to be the one who's willing to do the extra work, make the sacrifices that are necessary, take good care of my body and my mind to become a better player, because it doesn't matter whatever he's showing me or teaching me. If I don't have that, the mental part of it, because 95% of this is mental, right? Um, so a professional coach, for me, his job is more of, a, like they say in England, he's a manager. He manages things. So to manage things, you have to make sure that, the, that, that you respect the players so much that they automatically respect you. But if you act as if you are better than them or more knowledgeable than them, it really doesn't, it will work for a short period of time because you have great players around you, but it will fall apart. And I've learned that in terms of how Paul Atori at of Club Sport Maritimo, how he coached us, how he coached me in particular, how he dealt with us individually. He knew exactly what to say to motivate me. He knew exactly how to get me to go eight. Hey, you know, like I told you the story, he calls me in and he says, you're yep. going to get that opportunity. He knew exactly how to get me going. Um, he knew my characteristic. He knew that, you know, I didn't like to go out on the, the field before the game and, and stay there and let all the crowd clap and cheer you on. I didn't like that kind of stuff. I never did that. So at first they were like, I'm like, no. And then Paul Latour was like, hey, leave him alone. Don't let him go out because all the fans, he doesn't like that. 
you know? And so when a coach can, can find those little things, just the little things to make you feel, I like to stay in the locker room and chat with the, the, the equipment man, Francisco, him and I would just be talking, Hey, you know, and he'll tell me jokes and I'll be just dying laughing while my teammates are out in the field, checking out the field and you hear the crowd going and everything. I'm in the locker room. We're just talking about a whole bunch of stuff and making fun of what Vado wore today. Did you see that? Did Vado wore? What is he thinking? Francisco goes, I don't know, man. So, and, and Paulo Torre understood that. And he understood what Paul Halvage liked and Vado. And I think that's the secret of having a good coach that manages players at this level. The really good coaches in my mind are coaches that coach younger players. Those are the ones that really have to get them. You develop them and there's a development portion of that. And then there's a growth. It, it can't be all developing. A lot of coaches think that they, when a kid is seven, 16, 17, you're still developing him. No, you're not. No, you're not. Once you hit that 15, 16 years of age, it's all about growth now, maturity in the game mentally and all of that because you should have all of the basics down by then if you don't <laughs> then it's going to be really hard so the coaches that are coaching kids that are 11 12 13 14 and maybe 15 those are the ones man those are the ones that are really putting in the work the coaches that coach professional athletes it's more of a psychological mental strain because we already know what it takes. We already, you know, we, we know, we, we, you know, we, we just need to be sharpened. We just need to be sharpened and motivated. <laughs> you know, that's it. And our egos need to be stroked a little bit, some more than others. Some need tough love. Some needs, you know, leave alone. And that's what a great manager does. And he puts together a system that the players buy into and they have an understanding of the patterns and the movement that they make and they gel with their chemistry and their movement, that's why you practice every day. It makes you better, not the games. It's the practice that makes you better. And then you go and you show everyone because you're entertainers, man. We're going on the field to entertain. Even though we're going that's to true. win, fans are coming there for you to entertain them. We you know? paid for these tickets. We want to yeah, see. Yeah, yeah, they want to you know, see. You want the result. Yeah, course. they want the result and they want you to entertain them and get the result. And not play soft and not play, oh, pretty, you know, pretty soccer, but not going anywhere. They want to see you play with passion, going after it, winning the loose ball, making the tackles, chasing guys down, moving the ball around, be direct when it's warranted, switch to play when it's warranted, keep possession when it's warranted. You know, when you lose the ball, go after it and play like that for 90 minutes. You do that consistently, you're going to win the fans over individually and collectively. And that was my mindset when I played. And that's why I think the fans gravitated to me because of my attitude. When I went, when I went to play, I gave 100% every time, not, no matter what, no matter what. I might be having a tough day, but I still ran my butt off. And that's the same kind of philosophy I have with the kids that I've been working with over the last few years since I retired. I love coaching kids. I like to pass on my knowledge to them, but I learned a lot from them as well. And so this World Cup coming in, in the wintertime, I think it's a good thing for a change because for it a is. month, you people are not thinking about the cold. You know, they're just can't wait for the World Cup games to come. And then when you know it, it's, it's the, the end of December. And all you got is two more months of cold. Not, you know what I'm saying? So and they're I, excited. I mm -hmm. Yeah, they're excited because they go, okay, this, it, because it is something different. And you're right. When 
when you look at what makes, say, a player beloved by fans, for me, I've noticed with supporters, it's more an appreciation of, okay, knowing that somebody went and left it all on the field. Yes. For me, when I was growing up, we didn't have that much access to, to be able to watch soccer. It used to be I'd go over to my grandmother's house. That she, had, she had the TV, and I'd go over and I'd watch it, and that was the way to do it. And she was, her parents had come from Denmark. Oh, We'd been go. a fan of that. Mm-hmm. And I remember looking and I was like, I want to see the guy that has the most passion. I liked it when I would, we would see a hard, clean slide tackle, or you would see somebody that would go playing at right mid, be able to push the ball up, link up, and then make a massive run to be able to get into the center and then be able to set up for the striker. It was things like that that I was like, this guy is just running so fast and has so much enthusiasm for the game because you're right. It's, it's entertainment, of course, Mm -hmm. but it's all, it's called the beautiful game for a reason when you're observing it. And that's frankly what it sounds like you're doing and what makes a great manager, which is you respect the game. You have to respect respect the game. You have to respect the game. You have to go out there and, and you know that there are people coming to see you respect the game. That's how I used to look at it. There are people right. coming to watch me respect this game, respect the beautiful game, and to work hard and to give them everything I got because that's all they're asking for. And even if you mess up, I think that when people can see that you've give every, you're given everything you got and they will clap and they will appreciate the hard work that you put in. You know, they would say, man, they, he had a tough game, but man, did you see him? He never gave up. He mm-hmm. never gave up. And I tell the kids that I coach, that is the attitude that you have to have, not only on the field, but especially off the field. To you use that, to learn the lessons. Man, huh? To learn the lessons you're, you're using yep. on the field that you're instructing. You're basically instructing them for life. You're telling them, you're teaching them on the pitch, but they're using the lessons off the pitch, on the pitch, off the pitch, which is, yes. okay, being persistent, being resilient, being a good sport, being able to say, okay, I've had, there's ups and downs of life, of course. Oh, yeah. But I mean, look at the perspective you've been able to attain going from moving from Guyana to mm-hmm. Canada. And that's, I think that's what also helps Canada too, is the fact that we have a lot Canada, of people. The US, yeah. mm-hmm. It's so many immigrants coming in yep. that are welcome and it kind of makes it easier to adapt. Yes. It seems like. Yes, it does. I mean, I, at first, it was, you know, it's always tough when you go from a different culture to another culture to adapt to it. Um, it took me a little bit. But once, you know, once I got to the swing of thing, then I was embraced by a coach that that took good care of me. Mike Tiseo, he, he was like a second father. Um, I learned to play the game in St. Leonard, Montreal, which is with the Italians. And they taught me how to play the game. So I always have a heart, uh, a big heart for the Italians. Um, And and they embraced me and my family. And they taught me how to play the game. They taught me how to conduct myself on and off the field. They They taught me something about loyalty. Loyalty. I mean it. They they are so loyal. And and that's a big thing for me and always has been loyalty. And, um, and I try to teach the kids, my own kids, my daughter, my, my three sons. Um, I've got stepkids, you can call them, you know, he plays uh, Isaiah LaFleur, plays with Houston, the second team. And 
and Nina, she's on the Ohio State University women's team. Um, so I always try to tell them about character. It's the most important thing that you have, you know, and, and working hard and being dedicated and being kind, not nice. You know, there's a big difference between kind and nice. I tell them, choose kindness over niceness. Kind people are the real people. Nice people, watch out. Watch yeah, nice, out. Pe nice people, you may... You may think, okay, they might be nice to my face, but then mm -hmm. might, there's criticism after it's. Oh you're yeah, such a great player, such a great person, and then afterwards it's. Yep. Watch out, for, watch out for the nice people. That's all I can tell you. Nice people, mm, kind people. They're there with you through thick and thin. They'll they'll tell you right in your face the truth. And that's important. It's important oh, it's to so be important. direct. I mean. I don't I, I think when you look at human nature, it's it's meant to be kind, but it's also saying, look, if something's happened and most of the time we get upset over things, but people's intentions aren't bad. Honestly, mm -hmm. the intention is usually right. The delivery can is where sometimes I feel like that's where that the question of nice versus kind comes in. It's yeah. maybe the intention wasn't bad, but the delivery is right. and accountability, you know, too, right? Yes, that's accountability. True accountability is the key, man. When you mess up, you got to fess up, <laughs> you know, the old saying you mess up, fess up and, and be true to it and, 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 and do everything you can to not make the same mistake again. And that's what great athletes do on the, on the field as well on the pitch, you know, they make a mistake and rarely do you see them make the same mistake over and over again. Rarely they, they make that mistake. They have a short memory and they move on. That's how I played. When I made a mistake, I didn't dwell on it. It's time to if you dwell on it, then that's that's the problem is then I, you see somebody going through, say, say you, you made a mistake and you dwelled on it, then potentially that could lead to, say, a 10 game goal drought because you've yeah. been thinking about that. And then I think oh, that, yeah. to be honest, I think that was one of the the problems earlier was 83rd minute today in the USA game. You see Zimmerman concede a penalty and yeah. OK. It was a terrible tackle, of course. Yeah, but, it was, yeah. But you have to have a short memory in this yes. game. because Because there's still seven, eight minutes to go. Exactly. Yep, that's the key. People don't understand that. If you dwell on that now, it's going to affect your performances, and there, there could be another two, three goals. Because you can score a goal in five seconds in soccer. People don't Exactly. Realize. Look what happened with Ecuador. You know, the opening match, three minutes in, barely off sides, the goal gets disallowed. Yeah. And yep. they come back and they get two goals. Yep. They, 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 didn't, they didn't let that affect them in any way, shape, or form. They, okay, that's it. Let's move on. Boom, boom, boom. And they, they got a great result from that, you know. So, I mean, these are the conversations that I like to have because it, 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 you, you nailed it when you said the beautiful game. I think that the beautiful game is, for me, the reason why they call it the beautiful game, it's not because Pelé was so great, or Maradona, or Messi, or Cristiano Ronaldo, or Cruyff. I can go on and on and on. The original Ronaldo, all phenomenal players. It's not because of that. It's called the beautiful game because it does such beautiful things like bringing people together, right? From all race, all religion, doesn't matter, all demographics. That is why it's called the beautiful game. That's why it's, in, it's global. That's why the world loves this sport. That's why it's bigger than any sport. It, no sport comes even close to this sport. And, and 
of course, we have people that try to take advantage of that situation, people in power. And we have that in all walks of life. But at the end of the day, the beautiful game allows a kid like me coming from Plaisance, Guyana, who didn't have much financially and had a great upbringing from my parents and my older siblings and was able to take advantage of the opportunity that was presented to me from a country that gave me that opportunity, Canada and my home city of Montreal and, and St. Leonard in particular. And wham, there you go. And the Italians taught me. And I'm this black young boy who this Italian white man take me, takes me under his wing and shows me unconditional love. It's there. It's there. That's why it's the beautiful game. And I wish more people would use that as an example to show that we're all God's children and that we can, we can disagree, but we can disagree respectfully and we can disagree. And that's what the beautiful game is about because you're going on the field with players and you're playing with teammates that you might not agree with. <laughs> you might not like their lifestyle. You might not like what they do when they come off the field, but somehow, some way you find it to, to work together. And if somebody goes in hard on that guy, you're defending him. Mm -hmm. You know, you, if you're in your striker, right? You're a defender, your striker, and you don't get along, but somebody goes in hard on him. The next, the, the next play that the striker that you're playing up against goes in, what do you do to him? Most likely, if you have the opportunity, you will go in hard on him. Because you're saying to your teammate, you know what, I've got your back. If they're going to do that to you, I'm going to do that to them. And this is, that's why it's called the beautiful game. That is why it's called the beautiful game. And you don't care about what religion he is, where he comes from, what lifestyle he wants to live. All you know is that on that day, him and I are fighting for the same cause. And we have so much in common on that day. And I think most people don't realize that we have so much in common. And, 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 and I'm glad that we have the World Cup right now because, man, we need a lot of love and kindness. And, and, and this World Cup, I think, can bring people together again to see the beautiful game being played, seeing all these people in the stands cheering, but not going after each other, just yep. cheering for their country. And then after the game saying, man, oh, man, I love it. And that's what the beautiful game brings to all of us. I couldn't have said that any better myself. And you're right. I mean, the reason I think the reason people have this passion for the game is it allows us to meet people and be around, immerse ourselves in things we normally wouldn't. You know, for myself personally, I've met so many great friends because of this. I've met, I've made connections and learned about things that I probably never would have learned about, exactly. to be honest. And I think that's why. You know, again, there's good amount. There's way more good in the game than bad. Of course. There's some people trying to take advantage of it. But what really matters is the game spreads so much joy. And you see it within every single match. You see it on the faces of the people going in. The people are gleeful and excited over this because of the fact that a World Cup, if it's World Cup, Euro Championships, Gold Cup, whatever the competition is, it elicits this sense of joy because of the fact that Within this one small ball and this pitch, regardless of where you're at, you're playing in dirt, you're playing in mud, you're playing on rocks, 
rocks. It doesn't matter. That, barefooted, yeah, barefooted. It doesn't yeah. matter. Yeah, yeah. That joy is there. You know, yep. I remember growing up, we've got my local pitch is um, in North Carolina. It's pretty bad. But, you know, we grew up and we didn't know any better. This was the one that we were excited on. Yep. And this was what, you know, growing up now, we've got a friend of mine that's playing in Charlotte. And he said, man, we used to be playing on these terrible pitches in Greensboro. It was rock and dirt. You'd Look get around. these new, you'd get the new cleats. And I remember one time he came in when we were at UNC Charlotte. He had the new cleats and another friend of ours did too. They came in. They were so nervous. They were, because we were playing on the turf and they were like, I don't know if I want to bust these out. They brought those out and they were just so excited just to be able to get it. And then the first touch was so heavy. It said <laughs> practically to the lights. Yeah. It was, it's things like that that make it just exciting. Just yeah. that small joy of going, okay, I can spend an evening playing with friends and catching up because that's really what it does in this busy life. That's one of the few things that help us kind of slow things down. So true. So well said. So well said. I think you got it, man. For a young man, you've got it. You've got it. Attempted to. Yeah. Thank, well, Alex, thank you for regaling us with some fantastic stories. And obviously, best of luck to Canada tomorrow. We're rooting for them. And I hope that everything goes well with them and also with you and your family. Thank you. Likewise to you. I'm chairing from uh, USA as well. And the country that has something in my heart is Portugal as well. Yeah, I yeah. love them too. All right. Take care, Alex. <laughs> All right. Take care, my friend. All right. Thank Bye -bye. you. You're welcome. Wow. What a nice young man.